Chapter 15 of A Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 15 A few hours later, without having witnessed anything of particular significance, except as befell myself, I was transferred to my old ward. The superintendent, who had ordered this rehabilitation, soon appeared, and he and I had a satisfactory talk. He gave me to understand that he himself would in future look after my case, as he realized that his assistant lacked the requisite tact and judgment to cope with one of my temperament, and with that my desire to telephone my conservator vanished. Now no physician would like to have his wings clipped by a patient, even indirectly, and without doubt the man's pride was piqued, as his incompetence was thus made plain. Thereafter, when he passed through the ward, he and I had frequent tilts. Not only did I lose no opportunity to belittle him in the presence of attendants and patients, but I even created such opportunities, so that before long he tried to avoid me whenever possible. But it seldom was possible. One of my chief amusements consisted in what were really one-sided interviews with him, Occasionally he was so unwise as to stand his ground for several minutes, and his arguments on such occasions served only to keep my temper at a vituperative heat. If there were any epithets which I failed to apply to him during the succeeding weeks of my association with him, they must have been coined since. The uncanny admixture of sanity displayed by me, despite my insane condition, was something this doctor could not comprehend. Remarks of mine, which he should have discounted or ignored, rankled as the insults of a sane and free man would have done, and his blunt and indiscriminate refusal of most of my requests prolonged my period of mental excitement. After my return to my old ward, I remained there for a period of three weeks. At this time I was a very self-centered individual. My large and varied assortment of delusions of grandeur, made everything seem possible. There were few problems I hesitated to attack. With sufficient provocation, I even attacked attendants, problems in themselves. But such fights as I subsequently engaged in were fights either for my own rights or the rights of others. Though for a while I got along fairly well with the attendants, and as well as could be expected with the assistant physician, it soon became evident that these men felt that to know me more was to love me less. Owing to their lack of capacity for the work required of them, I was able to cause them endless annoyance. Many times a day I would tell the attendants what to do and what not to do, and tell them what I should do if my requests, suggestions, or orders were not immediately complied with. For over one year they had seen me in a passive, almost speechless condition, and they were therefore unable to understand my unwanted aggressions. The threat that I would chastise them for any disobedience of my orders they looked upon as a huge joke. So it was, until one day I incontinently cracked that joke against the head of one of them. It began in this wise. Early in October, there was placed in the ward a man whose abnormality, for the most part, consisted of an inordinate thirst for liquor. He was over fifty years of age, well-educated, traveled, 
refined and of an artistic temperament. Congenial companions were scarce where I was, and he and I were soon drawn together in friendship. This man had been trapped into the institution by the subterfuge of relatives. As is common in such cases, many white lies had been resorted to in order to save trouble for all concerned, that is, all except the patient. To be taken without notice from one's home, and by a deceitful, though under the circumstances perhaps justifiable strategy, placed in a ward with fifteen other men, all exhibiting insanity in varying degrees, is as heartbreaking an ordeal as one can well imagine. Yet such was this man's experience. A free man one day, he found himself deprived of his liberty the next, and branded with what he considered an unbearable disgrace. Mr. Blank, as I shall call him, was completely unnerved. As he was a stranger in what I well knew was a strange world, I took him under my protecting and commodious wing. I did all I could to cheer him up, and tried to secure for him that consideration which to me seemed indispensable to his well-being. Patients in his condition had never been forced, when taking their exercise, to walk about the grounds with other patients. At no time during the preceding fourteen months had I seen a newly committed patient forced to exercise against his will. One who objected was invariably left in a ward, or his refusal was reported to the doctor before further action was taken. No sane person need stretch his imagination in order to realize how humiliating it would be for this man to walk with a crowd which greatly resembled a chain gang. Two by two, under guard, these hostages of misfortune get the only long walks their restricted liberty allows them. After the one or two occasions when this man did walk with the gang, I was impressed with the not wholly unreasonable thought that the physical exercise in no way compensated for the mental distress which the sense of humiliation and disgrace caused him to suffer. It was delightfully easy for me to interfere in his behalf, and when he came to my room, wrought up over the prospect of another such humiliation and weeping bitterly, I assured him that he should take his exercise that day when I did. My first move to accomplish the desired result was to approach, in a friendly way, the attendant in charge, and ask him to permit my new friend to walk about the grounds with me when next I went. He said he would do nothing of the kind, that he intended to take this man when he took the others. I said, for over a year I have been in this ward, and so have you, and I have never yet seen a man in Mr. Blank's condition forced to go out of doors. It makes no difference whether you have or not, said the attendant. He's going. Will you ask the doctor whether Mr. Blank can or cannot walk about the grounds with my special attendant when I go? No, I won't. Furthermore, it's none of your business. If you resort to physical force and attempt to take Mr. Blank with the other patients, you'll wish you hadn't, I said, as I walked away. At this threat the fellow scornfully laughed. To him it meant nothing. He believed I could fight only with my tongue, and I confess that I myself was in doubt as to my power of fighting otherwise. Returning to my room, 
where Mr. Blank was in waiting, I supported his drooping courage and again assured him that he should be spared the dreaded ordeal. I ordered him to go to a certain room at the farther end of the hall and there await developments, so that, should there be a fight, the line of battle might be a long one. He obeyed. In a minute or two the attendant was headed for that room. I followed closely at his heels, still threatening to attack him if he dared so much as lay a finger on my friend. Though I was not then aware of it, I was followed by another patient, a man who, though a mental case, had his lucid intervals and always a loyal heart. He seemed to realize that trouble was brewing, and that very likely I should need help. Once in the room the war of words was renewed my sensitive and unnerved friend standing by and anxiously looking on i warn you once more i said if you touch mr blank i'll punch you so hard you'll wish you hadn't the attendant's answer was an immediate attempt to eject mr blank from the room by force nothing could be more automatic than my action at that time indeed to this day i do not remember performing the act itself what I remember is the determination to perform it and the subsequent evidence of its having been performed. At all events, I had already made up my mind to do a certain thing if the attendant did a certain thing. He did the one, and I did the other. Almost before he had touched Mr. Blank's person, my right fist struck him with great force in, on, or about the left eye. It was then that I became the object of the attendant's attention, but not his undivided attention, for as he was choking me, my unsuspected ally stepped up and paid the attendant a sincere compliment by likewise choking him. In the scuffle, I was forced to the floor. The attendant had a grip upon my throat. My wardmate had a double grip upon the attendant's throat. Thus was formed a chain with a weak, if not a missing, link in the middle. Picture, if you will, an insane man being choked by a supposedly sane one, and he in turn being choked by a temporarily sane, insane friend of the assaulted one, and you will have the nemesis as nearly in a nutshell as any mere rhetorician has yet been able to put her. That I was well choked is proved by the fact that my throat bore the crescent-shaped mark of my assailant's thumbnail, and I am inclined to believe that my rescuer, who was a very powerful man, made a decided impression on my assailant's throat. Had not the superintendent opportunely appeared at that moment, the man might soon have lapsed into unconsciousness, for I am sure my ally would never have released him until he had released me. The moment the attendant with his one good eye caught sight of the superintendent, the scrimmage ended. This was but natural, for it is against the code of honor generally obtaining among attendants that one should so far forget himself as to abuse patience in the presence of sane and competent witnesses. The choking which I had just received served only to limber my vocal cords, I told the doctor all about the preliminary verbal skirmish and the needlessness of the fight. The superintendent had graduated at Yale over fifty years prior to my own graduation, and because of this common interest and his consummate tact, 
we got along well together. But his friendly interest did not keep him from speaking his mind upon occasion, as his words at this time proved. You don't know, he said, how it grieves me to see you, a Yale man, act so like a rowdy. If fighting for the rights of a much older man, unable to protect his own interests, is the act of a rowdy, I'm quite willing to be thought one, was my reply. Need I add that the attendant did not take Mr. Blank for a walk that morning? Nor, so far as I know, was the latter ever forced again to take his exercise against his will. End of chapter 15